good to be with you all this morning. My name is John McCormick, and I'm the leader of one of the Thursday night house groups, as well as the leader of Renovation U here at Renovation Church. If you don't know what Renovation U is because you're new around here, it's something we do in the summertime. It's a program we run of theology classes when we're on breaks from house groups, and a bunch of classes like how to study the Bible, what are like the first steps with Christianity, as well as some classes on like what do we really believe as Christians. It's really, really great. I encourage you to take advantage of that come summertime. Uh, it's one of my favorite things of the year, so take advantage of that. I'm super excited to be with you all this morning. Uh, I last spoke here in the summertime outside, and my stand kept blowing over in the middle of my message, so I'm excited to be inside with you all today. It's going to be great. The stand's not going anywhere, so I'm excited for that. I hope you all had a fantastic Christmas yesterday and enjoyed reflecting on the birth of Jesus Christ as well as spending time with family and things. So I figured I would spend some time talking about myself this morning, because you probably don't all know me super well, and I thought, there's a lot of you probably don't know that I am a gamer. Now, if you don't know what a gamer is, it's an adult's way of saying that they play video games while also trying to still sound cool. So, fun little label we give. And I'm a fairly competitive person with that, as my friends can attest. And you could say that, you know, I enjoy winning just a little bit, uh, and I tend to get, you know, just a little bit frustrated when I lose. And so I, I find that the frustration is most evident when I'm playing a game where I find that someone is cheating. There are very, very few things in this life that upset me as much as cheating does. And it's because it makes the game unfair, and I have no way of winning. You probably can relate to that. And I, because I have no way to win, it makes my effort meaningless, and I can't balance out the scales. And my super competitive side just says, what's the point? I can't win. Why do I even do this? And I think as humans, we all end up in these situations where we share this desire for things to be fair, right? And if we're honest, we share a desire to win, too. And we feel wronged when things don't go the way we want them to in that situation. But as with all things in life, though, it's not about our default response that matters so much. It's about how Jesus responded to similar situations. So today, we're going to look in the book of Luke in the Bible and see how Jesus handled a situation like this where it was wildly unfair and his opponents cheated to win. We've been going through the book of Luke over the last few weeks and this morning we're now in the last few hours before Jesus' death. So we're on the morning of Good Friday, which is just hours before Jesus will be crucified by the Roman authorities. So today I'd love for you to follow along with us. We're going to be in Luke 22 starting at verse 66. In the Bibles that are underneath your chairs, you can grab that. It's going to be on page 721. When you're looking for it, look for the big 22 and the little 66 on the page to see where we're at. Or you can also follow along on the Renovation Church app this morning as well, if you'd like. So we're going to start off today, Luke 22, starting at verse 66. This is what it says. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, If I tell you, you will not believe me, and if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, Are you then the Son of God? He replied, You say that I am. Then they said, Why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. Okay, there's a lot going on here. So let's start off with some context, kind of what's led up to this moment, how we've gotten here. In the books Matthew, Mark, and John, which are three other books of the Bible about Jesus' life, we see an account of him being arrested in the wee hours of the night, and he's brought to these two different trials. The first trial comes from the book of John, where Jesus is taken and led to the house of a man named Annas, who's one of the high priests at the time. And that trial is really brief. It's small, 
it lasts for just, you know, a very small exchange, and then he's carted off to the second high priest's house. And this high priest, whose name is Caiaphas, has a much more in-depth trial with him. And then Jesus is taken by the guards, and he's beaten up, and he's mocked, which is what David talked about last Sunday, if you remember. And then the book of Luke picks up the story where we're at this morning, where Jesus is brought before the whole Sanhedrin. If you don't know, the Sanhedrin's like the Jewish Supreme Court. It's all the leaders of the Jews. And he's brought there and has a trial with them. So if you, can't, if you haven't counted so far, we're up to three trials now with the, religious, uh, the Jewish religious leaders. Now, I know what you're thinking, and it's not normal for there to be three trials for somebody like this. It's very unusual. And the night trials that we see in the books of Matthew, Mark, and John are actually illegal in Jewish law. Yeah, actually illegal. Normal Jewish trials have a bunch of rules they have to follow. And I want to share a couple with you this morning because I think it helps us understand this a little bit better. So the first rule is that Jewish trials must happen during the daytime. So a night trial is not legal then, obviously. The second rule is they have to have at least two witnesses so they could be examined separately and they didn't have contact with each other. So they could each corroborate the crime separate and verify it. The third one is they must meet in the official Sanhedrin building with the Sanhedrin present. The fourth one is criminal cases can't be tried during Passover. If you don't remember, over the last few weeks, we've been talking about Jesus going into Passover time. The Last Supper is their Passover meal that happened the night before. So they're right in the middle of Passover right now. The fifth rule is guilty verdicts can't, uh, have to have a deliberation of at least one day, 24-hour period, to think about it so they could have a chance to feel merciful for the person being judged. And the last rule is they must bring forth evidence first to prove innocence before they can bring forth proof, uh, forth evidence proving guilt. So looking at these rules, the high priests, they know these rules, right? They're, they're well aware of them. They know they can't try and convict Jesus fairly because he hasn't really done anything wrong. And so they cheat, and they have these illegal trials at night as kind of a practice run, right? They've got to fine-tune the charges against Jesus because come the morning, they're going to have the real trial, and they better have their story straight, right? And the irony is they're going to break every single one of these rules to do these trials, and still their trials don't really go that well. They don't go well for them at all. The first high priest can't get anything out of Jesus, and he just says, eh, send him to the other guy. The second trial he gets to, they have all these false witnesses that are making up stories about Jesus, and, and none of them agree. No one can seem to get their story straight. And I'll bet the high priest was starting to get nervous at this point, like, like they don't agree, what do we do? But you know what? He's persistent. And he switches tactics. And so he instead tries to get Jesus to speak what they call blasphemy, which is basically just saying bad things about God or claiming to be God. And it's a crime in Jewish law. And the high priest knows this is the best approach he has to win the morning trial. So let's actually look and see what happens in that second night trial in Mark. So this is going to be Mark 14, 60 through 62. This is what it says. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony these men are bringing against you? That's all the false testimony that doesn't agree. But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Aha! He's caught Jesus red-handed, right? He said he's the Son of God. Now he's got him. And what he's going to do He's used the exact same line of questioning in the morning trial. Check this out in our passage right now. Look at verse 67. So this is them, the, the leader speaking to Jesus. 
If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, If I tell you, you will not believe me, and if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. Sounds familiar, right? We recognize this. The high priest's question from the practice run produces almost the exact same response from Jesus in the morning. They prepared for this. They've practiced for this. But Jesus doesn't inten- intentionally doesn't answer that question directly, does he? First, he shares, this is pointless, right? You won't believe me. I can't convince you that I'm actually the Son of God, so what's the point? And then the rest of his answer is a direct reference to the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. The passage actually comes from Daniel 7, and it says, it's talking about one like a son of man that will rule God's kingdom. So it's not really a direct claim to be the son of God, but it kind of is, right? It also is at the same time. And the assembled people know that. The leaders realize this, and so they push him to be more direct. And they say in verse 70, are you the son of God? And Jesus responds with this weird phrase, right? He says, you say that I am. Kind of odd, right? In Greek, which is the language they would be speaking, that sort of meant like, yes, but not accepting responsibility for it. Like today, if you said, I can neither confirm nor deny, everyone knows you're saying yes, but I'm not really saying yes, right? It's the same thing here in Greek, right? So that's the way Jesus is saying this. But despite that, the Sanhedrin, they understand. They know the implications of what Jesus is implying. And so they carry him off to be punished by the Romans because at this time, the Romans are in control and the Jews can't give a death sentence. The the Romans are the only ones that are able to do that. Now, When we read this story, it seems unbelievably unfair, right? Jesus knows he can't defend himself in any way that will make anybody believe that he actually is the Son of God. And when he does speak, he never actually says anything that you could hold against him in a real trial, right? He never actually says, I am the Son of God. He doesn't say that directly. And if we tried something like that in the American justice system, it would get thrown out for lack of evidence, we would say that person's going to go free. And we'd call these trials a mockery of justice, right? I mean, all three of the trials are illegal, for goodness sakes. And not only do they mock him in these trials, like we heard this from Pastor David last week, they make fun of Jesus. They spit on him. They're all making fun of him. They mock him in those trials, but the trials themselves are actually also mocking Jesus. He's not even good enough to have a real, legitimate due process. They won't give it to him. And here's, here's the irony of it all. To top it off, he actually is the Son of God. They're trying him for what he actually is. Do you see the irony in that? It's bonkers. So here's our Jesus. He's abandoned by his friends. He's mocked, beaten up, exhausted. He's been up all night. And he's surrounded by his own people that want to see him dead. And how would you or I feel in that situation? Could we stay quiet? Would we keep calm in the face of unbelievable injustice? I I think it's safe to predict we wouldn't handle it well at all. Our, um, Our approach to justice that we're used to, and this is the Jewish approach too, right, is, you know the phrase, innocent until proven guilty. That's what we uphold. And we certainly uphold it when we're the ones on trial, right? We should be innocent until proven guilty for sure. But to be put in a situation where every single person in the room has already decided that you're guilty and is just trying to find or make up evidence to prove that would be a tremendous insult to our sensibilities. 
tremendous. And I think we would say something. Dismiss this case. There's no evidence, right? Or this is a mistrial. Throw the case out. Because it's illegal. The trial itself is illegal. And we'd be 100% right to say that. But here's the thing. Jesus doesn't. Think about that. Jesus doesn't. He doesn't decry the injustice. He doesn't stand up and demand a fair trial. He doesn't even struggle as they beat him up. It makes you think, doesn't it? But let's take even a step further back and look at the rest of Jesus' life. Because I think we would say, essentially from even his first moments on earth, everything that happens to him is wildly unfair. Think about this. We celebrated Christmas yesterday. And how does Jesus' life start? It comes right out of Luke 2. This is Luke 2, 7. There was no room, there was no guest room available for them. That seems wrong, doesn't it? This woman, who is very pregnant, about to give birth, has nowhere to go. And no one will give up their room for them. It's the Son of God being born. And everybody's like, nah, go stay in the stable. You know, say what you like about them. But the animals let baby Jesus into their stable, and they aren't the least bit sheepish. So, yeah. I had to put something in, you know. <laughs> but life doesn't get fair for Jesus later either, does it? Throughout his three years of public ministry, Jesus is a nomad and is likely living in tents most of that time. Check out what Jesus says about himself in this. This is in Luke 9, 58. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man, there it is again, has no place to lay his head. He's got nowhere to go. That's pretty hard. Let me give you a couple more examples where it's not fair. Time and time again, the Jewish leaders who are supposed to uphold justice are trying to trap and trick Jesus with his own words. Constantly, over and over and over again, trying to get him. Here's another one. In his own hometown of Nazareth, where he grew up, he knows these people. They form a mob and try to throw him off of a cliff his own people. And these next two hit me really hard. Jesus heals countless people. Countless. And 99% of them make zero to little effort to actually follow him. He feeds 5,000 people at once and almost every single person responds, so long and thanks for all the fish. In everything he does, Jesus doesn't try to make it fair. He could, right? He's the son of God. He could make everything fair and go his way if he wanted to. But he's not here to promote fairness. He came to fulfill the prophecies about him and live out God's plan, even if that means suffering in the process. And friends, here is the truth of the matter. Life is not fair. Life is not fair, and God does not promise that it will be. We might say we believe in the Bible, but how we actually talk and live is more like karma, right? If I just do good things, then good things will come back to me. And if I do enough good things, I can go to heaven. Seems fair, right? No! Because I think underneath it all, we don't even think that. I think truthfully, deep down, we actually don't want life to be fair. We want what we want. We know this is true because when anything bad happens to us in our lives, how do we all immediately respond? Why did this happen to me? Why did this happen to me? It's because our sense of fairness only extends to us getting what we want. 
And when that stops being true, now things are unfair. Right? It's not about justice. It's about things happening the way we think that they should. And as Christians, it is really easy for us to fall into this trap where we tell ourselves if we just follow Jesus, he's going to give us whatever we want. We treat Jesus like a cosmic vending machine where I can go hit all the right buttons and get what I need from him. He's there, and it's super convenient whenever I need something. But when God comes to us and says, I want you to do this, we just ignore him. He's just a vending machine. Whatever, I don't need him right now. Or if something goes wrong unexpectedly in our lives, we can just go get the quick fix. God's going to heal that relationship. He's going to heal that person. He's going to get me a better job. We prayed for it, and he loves us, so he's just going to give us whatever we need when we want it, right? He tells us to pray. We did it. Therefore, we get what we want. But Christians, please hear me on this. You are not promised a life where you will get whatever you want when you follow Jesus. Period. Hard stop. It is a life of sacrifice and choosing to follow his way and what he wants for us instead of what we want or what we think we deserve. Honesty time. Be honest with yourself. When was the last time you asked God what he wanted you to do instead of what you wanted? Has it been a day, a month, a year? When you did, when you asked him, and he told you something, what'd you do with it? Did you actually listen? We can't expect God to always call us to do what we want to do. In fact, most of the time, that's not the case. And when God allows something to happen to us that we don't like, we cannot say that God is being unfair. If Jesus himself did not experience fairness in this life, and he is the Son of God, what makes us expect that we should get anything different? Why would we deserve good things? Why should it be different for us? He's Jesus, and he was only mistreated and then murdered. That was his life. We saw just a few weeks ago, Jesus in the garden, talking to God and saying, God, if there's any way... Please, I don't want to die. But what does he say immediately after that? But not my will, but yours be done. There's a reason the 99% of people did not follow Jesus. It's because he doesn't call us to a life that's easy or a life that's fair. He says, let go of what we think we deserve, what we want, and follow him. I'll give you a couple examples right out of the Bible for this. This one comes out of Luke 14, 27. This is Jesus talking. He says, And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. I don't know if you know this. Crosses are big and heavy and hard, and it's not easy to move them. It's challenging. Here's another example. It comes out of Matthew 19, 21 through 22. It's a rich man talking to Jesus, asking him, How can I go to heaven? This is how Jesus responds. He says, Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, Go. Sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus doesn't tell the man, go and accumulate wealth and be comfortable. No, he says, sell your possessions. Follow me, which is hard, which is why the man just walks away sad and doesn't do it. It's too hard for him. 
And even though Christians are called to a difficult life, God gives us two extremely important promises. And I want you to hear these this morning. The first one is, is that he loves us and that he will take us to be home with him forever when we die. To a place where there is no sadness, no death, no pain, none of that. The second promise is, is that when things go wrong in this life, because they will, we know that he is in control and he has a plan. Check out this promise. It comes right out of the Bible. One of the most famous passages in the Bible, Romans 8, 28, says this, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now don't miss this. It does not say God works all things for what you want. If that's what he meant, he would have said that. He says he works all things for the good, but he gets to determine the good. You don't. I don't. We don't get to pick that. God gets to decide what's good in our lives. And yet that flies in the face of this fair life we all want where we are in control, where we're in the driver's seat. And I use quotes when I say fair because what is even that, what does that word mean? Like what is fair? If I took a poll of everybody in the room right now and I gave you a bunch of scenarios and said, which one is fair or not? In this place, we would get disagreement between us on what's fair or not. You know why? It's because fair is a subjective label we apply when we don't like the outcome of a situation. Did somebody cut you off in traffic? Man, that jerk, that's not fair. Did someone cheat you in a game? Mom. Did you get that promotion? Did someone else get that promotion that you worked so hard for? Man, what has that person ever done to deserve that? But what about when you cut somebody off in traffic? Well, I, I really just needed to get over. Hmm. What about when you cheated a tiny little bit and won that game? Well, they shouldn't have shown me their cards. Okay. What about when you got the promotion and 10 other people didn't? Well, I worked, I deserve that. I, I deserve that. But, but did you? Do you see the glaring inconsistencies in our logic? Things are unfair when they hurt us but they're fair when we're getting what we want. What's underneath all that? That's our own selfishness, which is born out of our pride. Fair is not about seeing right done for all, so much as seeing my right done. Let me say that again. Fairness is not about seeing right done for all, so much as seeing my right done. We're getting, when we're getting what we want, And what we think we deserve, the world is working great. Everything's awesome. Yes. But the moment that changes, now there's terrible injustice. How could this be? We live our lives, or what's fair, or what's good, is based on our whims at the moment, and therefore is a constantly moving target. I said this example out in the lobby earlier, and I liked it, so I'll use it again. When I eat cake at nighttime, that's great. But when I wake up, I go, what have I done? It was good in the moment, but the next moment it's wrong. That's how we live our lives. Constantly shifting. Because we want what we want when we want it. And so our selfishness defaults us back to this good things line that we'd like to tell ourselves. I get what I want, and I tell myself I do good things to soothe my conscience. That's how we live. But this brings us to the real problem. Despite what we tell ourselves... 
We have all committed crimes against God's laws, which we call sins. And every single one of us in this room deserves punishment for those sins. We don't deserve to go to heaven. In fact, the exact opposite. The Bible tells us we all deserve separation from God in hell forever. God is a good judge. He must punish crimes. It's who he is. The Bible tells us over and over again that we've punished. That the wages of sin, what we've earned for our sin, is death. That's what we've earned. And if you take two minutes to look at the world around you, watch the news for two minutes, you will see how horribly broken and messed up everybody is. We are all so screwed up. Therefore, God cannot be fair. He cannot be just and let us into heaven because we've done some good things. Think about it. If you were in a trial, in a courtroom, and the, the convicted person or the, the accused person says to the judge, well, judge, I, I shouldn't go to jail. I've done some good things. The person would get laughed at. And we'd all agree that that's no defense for that person not to be punished. So why is it different with God? Doing good things is no basis for us to get to go to heaven. That's no defense. For every sin we commit against God, there is nothing we can do to make it fair or to make it right again. How could we? What could we give God that he hasn't already given to us? What can we do for God that he hasn't already done for us? We can do nothing to balance the scales with him. And our list of sins is growing every single day. We're just going further and further into the red every single day. And that is the great beauty of Jesus. What he did in coming and dying for us was wildly unfair. If things were fair, we would all get punished. And that's the end of the story. That's what we deserve. But Jesus came and took our punishment on himself because he loves us. Think about this. One man bore the sins of billions of people. Trillions of sins that billions of people will commit on one man in one moment that covered in the past, in the future, and right now, forever. And he did that because we couldn't do anything to save ourselves. We had no hope. He came on a rescue mission because he knew he was the only way we would get to heaven. And that punishment that you deserve, that I deserve, we don't have to experience it. And yet, Jesus came offering this gift, and we treated him like the scum of the earth. It may or not have been you and I in that inn that said, no, I'm sorry, you can't get born here. Go, go hang out with the sheep. We may have not been the people standing in these courtrooms condemning Jesus, trying to make up evidence against Jesus. We may have not been the people that in just a few verses will shout, crucify him, crucify him. And yet, our sin held Jesus on that cross. We are just as guilty. We held him there just as much as everybody else because he came to save us. He went up on that tree and died in the most horrific way that has ever happened because he loves us. That's amazing. That is beyond comprehension. It's such good news. And if you haven't received that gift from Jesus, you have a chance today and every single day to accept that. We can choose to live our lives desperately trying to make things fair and somehow always being behind. 
forever struggling to get what we want and to bend the world to our whims, struggling to make sense of why bad things happen and why we never have anything go our way. Or we can choose to let go of all that and instead accept a very unfair gift. We can accept his gift of freedom from our sins. And I believe there are some here that have never received that gift. Because if you've been chasing your whole life after fairness, and you're just exhausted from it, today is the day to stop chasing. You're never going to find it. You're never going to get it. It's not going to happen. Today you have a choice to stop making everything right on your own and instead receive Jesus' gift to make it right for you. He doesn't ask that you get your life in order, that you figure everything out, that you make everything right, or that you balance things out yourself. He just says, come as you are. Come as you are, broken as you are, come. And his sacrifice throws out the scales. It makes you right with God. It makes you a child of God and promises you eternity in heaven with him. And you can finally let go of fairness. Jesus doesn't promise that this life will be fair. But, this is it, hear this. Jesus is calling you to something so much better than fairness. Fairness is not good. Jesus is good. He's calling you to joy and peace in the midst of a broken, unfair, messed up world that will never go your way. It's never going to work. And while that doesn't mean your life is going to be easy street, it does mean when things seem to go wrong, you can trust that God has a plan and surprise, things actually didn't go wrong. He knew that was going to happen. It seems wrong to us from our perspective, but God knew that was going to happen. And he's using it for the good if you love him. And he's also promised to know you, to be with you in this life, to walk with you, and in the end to take you to be home with him forever. To a place with none of the things we hate, the hurt, the hard, none of that. Everybody, do me a favor, just close your eyes for a minute, bow your heads. Because if you're in a place right now where you're thinking, that's me. I need that. Now is the time to believe in Jesus and receive his gift. And if you've never done that before, I'm going to ask you to do something this morning. As a way to mark this moment, I'm going to ask you to stand up wherever you are. Don't worry about everybody else. Their eyes are closed. They're not looking at you. This is your moment between you and Jesus to say, yes, I accept your gift. I want to follow you. I'm done trying to make things right on my own. I'm I'm done with it. I'm tired of it. Receive that gift from Jesus this morning, and I promise you, he will change your life. So if that's you, wherever you're at in this room right now, if you're just feeling God pulling on your heart right now, I want you just to boldly stand up. Accept Jesus and follow him. Go ahead and stand up. If you're feeling God just saying, Stop running from me. Stop trying to get it right on your own. Stop struggling to do everything your own way. Listen to that this morning and just stand up and accept him. Give you about five more seconds. Okay, you can open your eyes. I don't see anybody in this service and that's okay. You know, God's always moving in his own timing. But I want to encourage you this morning. Think about how you're living your life. Think about who you're following. Is it God? Or is it what you want? 
And I want to encourage you, let go of what you want. Trust in God. He gave up so much to come and die for you. Christmas was yesterday. We celebrate Jesus coming to do this. That's why he came. So seek after him. Follow him. Accept that gift from him and follow him and see what he's going to do in your life. Let me pray. Father, I just thank you for the chance to be here this morning. I thank you for the opportunity to come and see your son at work, to see how he handles situations that we deal with too. Thank you that he's so relatable to us, that he knows us, that he gets it, that he's been through the same trials as we have. I just ask that you would cause all of us to let go of the things we want, to throw out what we think we deserve, and instead to just seek after Jesus, to follow what he's calling us to instead. And Lord, when we do that, I pray that you would move in mighty ways, that you would show us that you're real, that you would show us that you're on the move, and that you would use us for your grace and for your glory. May you be lifted up in all things, Jesus. In your name, amen.